This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. The idea that American culture has devolved its social bonds has been around a long time. I mean, obviously, things like Robert Putnam's Boning Alone. Sure. <laughs> boning Alone. <laughs> Genius. Can't we keep that in? No. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a fun conversation today. My guest today is Johan Hari, who is author of the new book, Lost Connections, uh, as well as Chasing the Scream, which both of the books I've read in the last couple of months, both books I think are, are worth you reading, are worth discussing. Lost Connections is, in theory, a book about depression and anxiety and how the story we've been told about those primarily being problems in our brain is wrong or at least incomplete that they're much more fundamentally problems in our society that they are problems in our lives uh you'll hear this in the conversation so i'm not going to spend too much time on it but i think this book is much more profoundly a critique of how our society is structured i think there's a a real radicalism in this book uh, an idea that maybe we've gotten some very 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 big things about the way we live wrong wrong in ways that are making us unhappy wrong in ways that are making us sick and i think it is worthwhile as bracing in some ways it's refreshing to question what we have built from this perspective. So Johan, as you'll hear, is a fantastic storyteller, a very, very interesting guy, uh, and I think has a very interesting perspective on this. So I think you all will like this podcast quite a bit. Um, as always, you can email me, feedback, uh, show ideas, guest ideas at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here we go with Johan Hari. So I've read the book, and I realized something about it. This isn't actually a book about depression, is it? <laughs> what do you mean? That's not what it's about. Tell me more. This is a book about how society is screwed up. Yeah. Is it not? I think the fact that our society is screwed up is what's made us depressed and anxious to a really significant degree. So I think they're interconnected. But I think that's a fair point, actually. It's a, it's a diagnosis of what's going on with our culture that's made so many of us feel so bad. I mean, it felt to me reading this that you had snuck in a, a genuinely thoroughgoing critique of modernity. <laughs> under the guise of a book about depression and anxiety, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I think it's I think it's really interesting. But there what was fascinating to me reading the book was that you are very, very concerned that we have gotten this. And when I say this, you can't see it on a podcast, but I'm waving my <laughs> arms to 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 signal all of it. You You seem to me to feel that we have gotten this pretty profoundly wrong. You know, I'm glad to be alive today, and there's lots of things about our culture that we do right. But one of the things I learned from speaking to scientists all over the world over 40,000 miles is that we quite deeply misunderstood things like depression and anxiety. 
And one of the things that kind of connected the critique of a lot of the scientists that I met, the critique from the World Health Organization, is I think it can be summarized in everyone listening to this knows that they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took them away from you, you would be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that we have natural psychological needs, right? You've got to feel you belong. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people see you and value you. You've got to feel that you have a future you understand. And our culture is good at lots of things, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting people's deep underlying psychological needs. There's lots of evidence for that. And I think that's one, it's not the only one by any means, but that's one of the key reasons why we have this spiraling depression, anxiety and addiction crisis. Well, help me with the evidence that it's getting worse, because this is something I was thinking about in the book. Um, what is the evidence that we are becoming more unhappy, more depressed, more alienated? Well, walk me through the evidence that this is not just bad, but life has always been bad, but that there is some modern pathologies that are accelerating. So one of the things I learned in all the research is that there are these the scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. There may well be other causes for which we don't yet have evidence. Two of those causes are biological. There are things that in your biology that can make you much more sensitive to depression and anxiety. And seven are factors in the way we live. And I don't think all of those factors have increased, but I do think some of them have increased. There's strong evidence some of them have increased. So I'll give you one example of one of the most powerful determinants, I think, which is loneliness. Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who I've interviewed a lot, has proven that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. They're not just, they don't just make up, cause unhappiness. They are drivers of depression and anxiety. For a very kind of simple reason, as he put it to me, if you think about the circumstances where human beings evolved, right, we exist, we're able to sit in this studio for one key reason. Our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were incredibly good at one thing. They were incredibly good at banding together in cooperative tribes. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They were much better at working together. Every instinct human beings have is to be in a cooperative democratic, well, not sorry, democratic, to be in a cooperative tribe. And, you know, so just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. And there's really strong evidence that we are the first humans to really try to disband our tribes. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, it's not, not the average, but the most common answer is none. So we've got this unprecedentedly lonely society. And as Professor Cassiopo put it to me, you think about the circumstances where we evolved. If you were alone and separated from the tribe, you were anxious and depressed for a really good reason. You were about to be eaten, right? You were in terrible danger. If you got injured, you would probably die. So I think that's one factor, for example, I can talk about others. I want to, I want to stop you on yeah. that for a second because you have a piece of evidence in the book that I'm very bought in on the loneliness research. I, I, I do think this is one of our, our truly severe social problems, but, but you had something I'd never seen before, which is that you can measure the lonesomeness of people all over the world by testing how often they wake up in their sleep. And that was really, that, that's one of those ones that has rung in my head since I read it. Can you, can you talk a bit about that research? Yeah, and I, I was totally fascinated by this myself. So everyone experiences something called micro-awakenings in their sleep sometimes, which uh, you wouldn't register them, but you wake up very slightly and then you go back to sleep. Uh, so you, you're roused a little. And one of the things we know is that when people feel lonely, they experience much higher levels of micro-awakenings. We think that's because... If you went to sleep on the savannas of Africa or our ancestors and you were lonely, you would be right to be vigilant and keep waking up because you, you weren't protected by the tribe, right? That's Professor Cassiopo's best thesis, although, you know, obviously it's hard to test that. 
And, but it's a very good proxy for loneliness. If people describe themselves as being lonely, they will certainly experience a lot more micro-awakenings. And one of the pieces of research Professor Cassiopo did is he went and spent time with this group called the Hutterites, who were even more hardcore than the Amish. They live in a very no-electricity off-the-grid, and I went and spent time with an Amish community as well. And what he found is the Hutterites experience virtually no micro-awakenings in their sleep. So they're, 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 it's not that lo- what this demonstrated is it's not just that loneliness is a kind of inevitable human malady, it's that it's a function of certain ways of living. There was another thing that Professor Cassiopo discovered about loneliness that I've thought about so much. I actually realised I'd misunderstood what loneliness is. I had thought social isolation and loneliness were the same thing, right? So if you say to someone, do you feel lonely? Virtually nobody has difficulty understanding what you mean and answering yes or no. But what he found that was really surprising is that social isolation and feeling lonely actually don't correlate that much. Actually, the number of people you interact with is not a good predictor of how lonely you feel. There's something else that's a predictor of how lonely you feel. So he gave this example to me. If you imagine, if you go, you know, we're in D.C., if I, I've been to D.C. many times, but if I had come to D.C. for the first time and I went to the White House and I was standing in front of a crowd of people outside the front of the White House, I would be surrounded by people, but I would feel lonely, right? Or if you're in a hospital bed, you can push a button to get a nurse, they'll come straight away, but you're generally you'd feel lonely in that situation. And he said, well, why is that? And what he discovered is... The situations that cure loneliness are not when you get access to other people. They're situations of mutual aid. So it does not cure your loneliness to just be given someone helping you or to be surrounded by other people. So the nurse comes, you still feel quite lonely. What heals human loneliness is if you feel that you have a reciprocal relationship where someone is giving something to you and somewhere down the line they'll give something back to you. Helps to explain why in marriages people become really lonely when they start to break down and you no longer feel you're in it with the other person. Do you see what I mean? So that to me is such an interesting insight about loneliness. So, so give me then the, the, the broad piece of this within society. How did our society become an engine for loneliness? I think it's a whole range of things. There was this research I learned about from a wonderful person called Dr. Brett Ford, who's at the time was at Berkeley. She's in Toronto now. And she really helped me to think about this. So she did this really interesting research with her colleagues. They looked at if you consciously decide you're going to spend more of your life trying to become happier, will you actually become happier, right? And they did this research in four countries. It was the United States, Japan, China, and Russia. And what they found is... If in, in the United States, if you consciously try to become happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, you do. And they were like, what's going on here? So they did more research. What they discovered was, in the United States, if we try to make ourselves happier, generally, you do something for yourself. You try to make more money, you buy something for yourself, you spoil yourself, you show off on Instagram, whatever. In the other countries, most of the time, if you tried to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else. You tried to help your friends, your community. So we have an implicitly individualistic vision of happiness. And they have an implicitly collectivist vision of happiness. And it turns out our vision of happiness, we're just not that species, right? That's not who we are. That's not what our instincts are. It just doesn't work that well for us. So I think these are some of the deep ideas that have become embedded in the culture which drive us towards loneliness. Now, there are other deep ideas in the culture I can talk about as well that drives to it. And I think some of these are soluble. Part of the problem with talking about the depth of the problem is it can actually induce despair in people. You can think, oh, Jesus, well, we're not all going to become like the Amish, right? But I think there are one thing that really But I want to hold on that question of why we haven't all become like the Amish, because this is something that I think about when I, I read some of this research and, and, and some of this commentary. The idea that, let, let's speak about American culture here, because that's what I know best. The idea that American culture 
has devolved its social bonds has been around a long time. I mean, obviously, things like Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. <laughs> we had, I, I'm not going to keep it in, but let's say that we had a, a funny misstatement of that a second ago that has now been edited. Uh, <laughs> um, but we've also had a, a real sense that we've broken down to the nuclear family. We've become a less religious culture. There, there, there are all these structures that, that, that created community that, that we don't abide by now. And you don't have to go back long in American history. In fact, it's still even around today to see a lot of efforts, some of them reasonably radical, at saying, well, let's try this differently. Let's live, um, I mean, this was more true in Israel than here, but on kibbutzes, in communes. Burning Man is a, a sort of radical communal experiment. There have been experiments with raising children communally. And what always strikes me about these is that they seem to me to make sense. They seem to me that they would begin to, to, to address this need. They seem to me like they're based on a reasonably compelling critique of the ways in which we have shrunken down to these nuclear families and become far from our kin and far from our initial support networks. And they don't survive and they don't expand. So if we really are, as a country, in this crisis of loneliness, if we're in this place and, 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 and the surveys you, you cite and, and that I've seen before, they're, they're stunning, this idea that most people don't have any friends. I shouldn't say that. That the most common number of close friends people note is zero. Why then are, and I know this is like the most neoliberal thing in the world to say, but like the market of different living arrangements, the, the way in which you could choose to live in a, in a commune with people, the way you could choose to do something different. Why do you think those haven't survived? Why hasn't society transformed away from this? I've been thinking about this a lot, partly because I'm writing this biography of Noam Chomsky, who lived on a kibbutz for a, for a while. And so I spent, I'm spending time on the kibbutz that he lived in. And one of the ways that helped me to think about it is looking at some of the places that have tried a different kind of social connection. So I'll give you an example that I think connects with what you're saying. There was a doctor in uh, East London who's one of the heroes of my book. He's called Sam Everington, who was really uncomfortable. He had loads of patients coming to him who were depressed and anxious. And he'd been told in his training, just tell them you've got a, they've got a chemical imbalance in their brain and just give them drugs, right? He knew, firstly, the science was way more complicated than it's just a chemical imbalance. And secondly, like me, he's not opposed to the drugs at all. But he just thought, this isn't dealing. He spoke to them and they were acutely lonely, a lot of these people. So he decided to try this different approach. I'll give you an example through one of his patients who I got to know well, Lisa Cunningham. So Lisa had been shut away in her home with depression and anxiety for seven years, crippling depression and anxiety. And Lisa went to see Sam, and he said to her, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you the drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. So she was, with the support of the doctors, she turned up twice a week, um, and there was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was an area of scrubland. And they, Sam and the other doctors just said, let's turn this into something beautiful, right? These were inner city people. They never didn't know anything about the natural world. They didn't know anything, which, by the way, disconnection from the natural world is a big cause of depression, which we can talk about. And the first meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? But the group started to get to know each other over time. They started to literally put their fingers in the soil. And they did this thing that human beings do when we're in groups, they started to solve each other's problems. One of the guys in the group, this is an extreme example, there were many more modest examples, one of the guys in the group was sleeping on a public bus at night, right? Everyone else in the group was outraged. They started pressuring the local authority to get him housed, which then happened. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in ages, exactly that research Dr. Brett Ford showed. That made them feel so much better than the rumination on themselves. They started to, I mean, the way Lisa put it to me was so poetic. She said, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. And there's this evidence in Norway 
that found a similar program was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think because it's dealing with the deep underlying, one of the deep underlying, or two actually, the disconnection from other people and the disconnection from the natural world. If you imagine these two poles, right, at one end you've got the kibbutzim where, you know, everything is collective, you don't even raise your own kids, you know, your kids are raised in a separate children's house, which probably goes too far the other way. And at the other end, you've got this extreme atomization, this almost, you know, Ayn Randian world where we were all the isolated individual imagining we're the hero of the story. Um, the From that direction, from the direction of what Sam calls social prescribing, I think we're moving closer to a kind of sane compromise. I don't want to live in a totally collective way either. I went to this Amish village and, you know, there were lots of things I, I found challenging and fascinating the time I spent in this Amish community. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to live like the Amish either. <laughs> but, 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 but so help me out then. What is our resistance then? There are a lot of things in this book where, where when I read them, I am reading a story where I can identify the forces at work, right? One of them, for instance, when you talk about the over-medicalization of, of certain kinds of mental health issues, it's like, okay, the pharmaceutical companies are spending a lot of money advertising and a lot of money pushing pills at doctors and, and, and trying to get people to treat this as a pure chemical imbalance problem. I get it. I, I, I can figure that one out. And then there are things like this one where the critique is, is, is deep, but I, don't, I do not have a good explanation of what it is in American or, or elsewhere life that is leading us to have fewer friends. I do not have a good explanation of why if we're becoming so unhappy and people complain about loneliness, my family members complain about loneliness. I mean, when I was growing up, I grew up in a suburb of Orange County and in California, and it was clear to me loneliness was epidemic. I saw all these adults around me who did not seem to have friends. And there is something here. There, There is... Something culturally, there, there's something. What, what, what do you think it is? Because you, when you say, hey, we have this amazing fix where some people got together to make a garden. Well, okay. Why aren't people getting together to make more gardens? Why are so, we bowling alone? I think there's a whole range of things. Partly it's the nature of the economy. If you're working constantly, like my, you know, my family, you know, similar position. If you're working constantly and you just collapse at home exhausted, you know, then you're not in a position to go gardening or do anything. But I actually think there's a much deeper reason. I don't think it's the full answer to what you're asking, Ezra, but I think it's an important part. And I learned it from an extraordinary man called Professor Tim Kasser. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about, you know, money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that's the gist of what he said, right? But weirdly, no one had actually scientifically... I'm looking forward to reading your translation of Confucius. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but no, yeah, no one had actually scientifically investigated this until Professor Kasser. And what I really took from him, so we all know, for example, that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. I essentially lived on a diet of fried chicken for 10 years from the age of 20 to 30. I actually had a real low point when uh, one day, it was in 2009 on Christmas Eve, I went to my local KFC. It was lunchtime and I won't even say my order, it was so disgusting. And the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, we're so glad you're here. And I was like, oh. And he went back and he came back with a massive Christmas card that the entire staff had signed to me and they'd written in the middle to our best customer. And my clogged heart sank because I actually thought this isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most. Right? <laughs> so, so you've got this, this and admittedly not with the to the extreme that I was, but you've had this junk food has taken over our diets. But what Professor Kasser has shown is a kind of junk values have taken over our minds, right? So Professor Kasser knew that there are broadly to put it crudely, two kinds of human motivation. We all have both to some degree. If you imagine, if you play the piano in the morning because you love it, that would be an intrinsic reason to play the piano. You're doing it because it gives you joy. You're not doing it to get something else out of it. You're doing it for that thing in itself. 
Now, if you imagine, if you play the piano, I don't know, to impress a woman, maybe a piano fetishist, I don't know, or because your parents really want you to be a piano maestro, or in a dive bar to pay the rent that you don't like, that would be an extrinsic reason to do it, right? You're not doing it for the thing itself. You're doing it to get something else out of it. And Professor Kasser has shown two really important things about this. One is, that, of course, we all have some intrinsic and extrinsic values. But the more you are driven by extrinsic values, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a really quite significant amount. 22 studies internationally have shown this now with depression. And I think it's 14 with anxiety. There are the reasons why I can tell you in a second. But the other thing he discovered is as a culture, we have become much more driven by extrinsic values. So th there are many reasons why uh, extrinsic values are life dominated by you know, living extrinsically, trying to show off, thinking about how you look to other people makes you feel really bad. One is, we know that one thing that's a really powerful natural antidepressant is what's called flow states, right? So that's when you're doing something you love. In my case, and I'm sure in your case, it would be writing with some other people. It might be, I know, running, definitely not for me, or, you know, music, whatever it would be. And it's that moment when you get into the zone and you're just in the moment and it's giving you joy and time seems to warp around you. We all know that feeling. Professor Kasser has shown extrinsic values massively suppress your ability to get into flow states. So imagine you're playing the piano because you love it and then suddenly you have to think, wait a minute, am I the best piano player in Washington, D.C. today? How are other people thinking about my my, uh, my piano playing, that would suddenly jolt you out of your flow state, right? So one factor is that people who are driven by extrinsic values have much lower flow states, but the more interesting one, and thing I think gets to your question, there are several, is it massively causes a deterioration in your relationships. There's a good illustration of this, I need to look up the exact quote, but I didn't use it in the book, but I think around 2009, Melania Trump went to speak at NYU, and a student said to her something like, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she replied, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Which to me is a really powerful illustration. Wait, really? Yeah. And it's a really powerful illustration of what a relationship driven by extrinsic values must be like. Because think about that. Melania Trump knows if she gets fat, it's, it's over. He knows if he gets poor, it's over. You can see how that's a good illustration of how extrinsic values make you much more insecure in your relationships, right? Compare that to, say, Barack and Michelle Obama, who I'm sure, you know, would love each other even if they were horribly burned in an accident or something, right? So because we've become much more driven by these extrinsic values, and there's a whole machinery dedicated to doing that, right? Partly it's advertising. I mean, more 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own surname. From the moment we're born, we're immersed in this machinery. It's a really nice experiment. It wasn't done by Professor Kasser. It was done before him in 1978 that I think illustrates this dynamic really nicely. And I think really goes to your, your question. So it's really simple. You get a load of five-year-olds and you get them in a sandpit, and they're split into two groups. The first group is shown two adverts for whatever the 1978 equivalent to Peppa Pig was, right, a popular toy. The second group is shown no advertising. And at the end of it, they say to all the kids, hey, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a nice boy who doesn't have the toy in the advert, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy. The kids who've not seen the advertising choose the nice boy without the toy, the kids who have seen the advertising choose the nasty boy with the toy. So just two ads primed them to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of kindness and connection. Now, that dynamic is playing out in our culture the whole time. Anyone who's listened to this who stayed longer at work that they don't like in order to buy something they don't need rather than go be with their friends, their family, their kids, that dynamic has played out for you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Listening to this, value seems like a strange word to use. So when I recognize this, I'll say. So I've been writing on the internet for 15 years now. And... I do it now to a much bigger audience than I did when I was younger. And I think sometimes, do I enjoy it more now? The answer is absolutely not. Um, I feel more nervous about it. I feel under more scrutiny. I am more concerned about what the feedback will be. I'm more concerned about how it will reflect on the institution that I founded. Uh, Compared to the freedom of when I was a younger writer, just sort of like tapping away at my keyboard, there's a lot less. And so I I can understand how that maps into the extrinsic versus intrinsic, right? Uh, I have more things that are not just my love of popping off about the news <laughs> that are that are motivating me. But you call these values. And the place that that makes me wonder, or where it doesn't ring true to me, is that it feels to me, um, when I look at others and, and, and my look at my own career, like it's extrinsic exposure. Hmm. Um, quietly, when I read the examples in your book, when I hear you talk about them, I mean, the difference between somebody playing piano in their garage and playing piano in front of thousands, tens of thousands, a million screaming fans, it's not just what they value. It's also what they're going to be exposed to. And something that seems true about our culture, um, one, at very basic levels, we need to make money to to buy food, to to buy shelter, etc. Another is that we are exposing more and more and more people to a lot of continuous feedback, um, particularly through social media. Uh, You know, it used to be that you probably were not going to get a lot of feedback on just what you thought day to day um, <laughs> yeah. as a normal person. But now you get retweeted and people are yelling at you or in, their, they're in your Facebook comments and, you know, you want your tribe to like you and, and on and on down the line. And so th- there's this idea of this being about a value system. But actually, in, in my just observation, it seems to be more about a context. And once the context changes, it's very hard to change it back. It's not just about what you want. It's about what's coming at you. I think that's a really astute point, Ezra. I think values are formed socially. We, we like to think that, you know, our values are just innate, but actually our values, you know, if we'd been raised in Maoist China, we would have sure. much more Maoist values than we, than we do now. So I think you're right, though. Thinking about it as values in an individualistic, isolated way would be, it would be a mistake. And I think you're totally right about how social media pushes people towards extrinsic values. I had one of the most interesting experiences I had for the book is I went to the first ever internet rehab center in the United States. It's in Spokane in Washington. And actually, I have to admit, my first response when I arrived, I arrive, it's a clearing in the woods. 
I just instinctively looked at my phone and was really annoyed that I had no cell phone reception. I couldn't access the internet. And I was like, oh, wait, you're in an internet rehab center. That's the point, right? But it was fascinating. The woman who runs that, Dr. Hillary Cash, has these really interesting insights about this, that, that a lot of the patients they get, not all, but a lot of them are these young men who've become obsessed with these multiplayer role-player games like World of Warcraft or whatever. And she said to me, what do these young men get out of these games, right? We've got to look at, it's not just an irrational pathology. They get the things the culture no longer gives them, right? They get a tribe. They get a sense of identity. They get a way to rise and gain status that everyone around them understands in the game. And that actually, in a sense, some of this obsession is about actually, uh, you know, it's almost, I began to think that the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex. I'm not against porn. Uh, at all I, sometimes i look at it but boning alone <laughs> we have to i demand you keep that part of this podcast where i will walk out now um but the the but but if if your sex life consisted solely of porn right you you would be constantly irritated and frustrated because it would be sorry i can't <laughs> sorry i'm ruining sorry. this podcast <laughs> sorry if your sex life was dominated by porn you know, you would be constantly irritated and frustrated. No one spends an hour looking at porn and then feels held and valued and sated right. the way they do after sex when it goes well, right? And, and I think so there's partly this aspect that actually the things you're talking about that feed these extrinsic values are an attempt to meet those deeper needs that don't quite work. But you're right, they also push you to live extrinsically. I mean, I had an experience a couple of weeks ago in Graceland, a bizarre experience. One of my nephews is obsessed with um, Elvis, I don't quite understand why, so I agreed to take him to Graceland. And it was this surreal moment where I just saw this complete illustration of what's going on with our culture in this distilled tiny moment. When you arrive, they don't have guides anymore. They just give you iPads, right? So you're shown around and there's an iPad that talks to you. And so if you're standing in a room, there's a representation of that room in front of you in the iPad. But what happens is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at this iPad, right, that they could have looked at. And in one place, we were in the jungle room, Elvis's famous jungle room. And this guy turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. If you swipe left, you can see to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see to the right. And I said to him, but sir, you realize there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do here called turning your head, right? The, it was, and he just looked at me like I was mad and went back to looking at his screen. So you can see how this displacement onto these extrinsic ways of living have prevented us from being present and seeing what's right well, in front I, of I us. I want to talk about the, the Internet Rehab Center sure. and, and in particular about the games because so one, I think for people who have not kept up with modern gaming, which is, is maybe a lot of us, these are not like Super Mario Brothers or not even like Doom. They're, they're, they're not what were the massive online multiplayer games. They are highly social. They are guilds that have oftentimes a, a, a real world component where people get together once or twice a year for meetups. And, and, and they do have these powerfully addictive qualities. I mean, you do have people who become these games become their lives and it's not a small number of people. And, and I've done some reading on this and, and thinking about it. And one of the things that I think is interesting about it is as much as it is a hyper-modern way of spending your time, it taps into a much more ancient way of organizing your life, right? You are literally a tribe. The thing that your tribe does is wander around, hunt, um, kill enemies, and, you know, help each other out. And, and so I am fascinated by the ways in which, particularly for people who are having trouble getting status in sort of normal life and who feel alone in normal life and who feel like they don't have a purpose, how these games, I mean, they they have dressed up and often, often put a narrative architecture on what's basically a pretty ancient form of tribal living and a pretty ancient form of, of organizing your life and your day and your community. 
And the, the way in which those have begun to addict people, two things about it. One is it, it seems powerful to me as a critique of, of where we are. The other is that as these systems become more powerful, um, people who listen to this podcast know I'm obsessed with the idea that like of the virtual reality dystopia. Uh, it, it's not at all hard to imagine 20 years from now when these technologies become really, really, really good, a pretty significant percentage of the population preferring to spend their life in there than out here. Yeah, that's something I thought about all the time. And I talked about a lot with Dr. Hillary Cash and a lot of the other people I spoke to. And like you, I'm really concerned about this. I think you also have to see the other bit of the context in which this arrives. So we've talked about the collapse of social community, social connection. We've talked about the rise of junk values. Think about that in relation to young people who are becoming obsessed with these games. There's a study in Britain, and I'm sure the figure is the same for the US. I couldn't find an exact study. The average British child spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner because by law, a maximum security prisoner in Britain has to have 70 minutes, right? So you think about that. We've raised our children and we've, we've kept them more captive than our murderers and rapists. They don't go out and explore their community. So what are they doing? They are, you're exactly right, that kind of roaming occurs into a virtual world rather than in a, in a physical world. I think that's, and, and, and Dr. Cash says, you know, she's not that she's against these games, like I'm not against them, you know. I don't want to be like the people who said, you know, novels were going to, in the 18th century, were going to corrupt people's minds. But I do think we need face-to-face -face interaction, right, to meet our deeper psychological needs. We need, there's a reason you and I could be having this conversation via Skype, right? And it would not feel like we were talking to each other. I wouldn't feel like you could see me in a deep way. I wouldn't feel that I could see, you know, that we were understanding each other. And I think you're right that what we, there are many, many reasons why we need to deal with these deeper underlying problems now. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Someone who really helped me to reframe this. I was learning about a lot of this intellectually. But I think one of the moments when it really fell into place for me was when I met an amazing South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia when they first introduced chemical antidepressants there, right? He was doing research on something else. And the doctors there didn't know what they were. So he said, they said to him, you know, what are these things? And he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need antidepressants. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about like a herbal remedy or something. They said, instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day had stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. And they'd given him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the fields. But apparently it's super painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. I imagine it was quite traumatic because, you know, he's in the field where he's been blown up. So... He became acutely depressed, crying all the time, didn't want to get out of bed. They said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. Derek said, what did you do? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to his problem. They saw that his pain made sense. It's not a pathology. It's not a misfiring. It's entirely understandable. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to go in the fields that were distressing him so much. So they bought him a cow, and within a few weeks, he stopped crying. He was fine. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. Now, if you've been raised to think about this the way we have, that sounds like a joke. You went to a doctor for an antidepressant, he gave you a cow, right? But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years, that our depression and anxiety and many of the mental health problems we're facing are to a significant degree, not entirely, but to a significant degree, responses to unmet needs, they're social problems. And I think you're right that if we don't deal with these social problems, people will seek impromptu solutions, some of which will be disappearing into virtual worlds, some of which will be disappearing into a world of anaesthetics like opioids. There'll be many variants. We launched Vox in 2014. We're about four years old now. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate all your kind words. <laughs> and we've got a big staff, more than 100 people. Here is my lesson from 
launching this from, from these past four years, it is one big lesson. If you hire the right people, you can get almost everything else wrong and still succeed. If you do not hire the right people, even if you do everything else right, you're going to fail. Your people and their talents and their work ethic and the culture they build, they're everything. We got lucky, um, but it's a lot of work to get lucky. ZipRecruiter makes that work a little bit easier. They recognize that hiring the right people starts with finding the right people. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. They identify folks with the right experience and they invite them. They go out and find them and invite them to apply to your job. They go where the candidates are so you get the people you need. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter, they get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. So that's the key. Find great people, know when you found great people, and then hire them do that, you're going to build a great organization. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So go out and, and, and go be a job creator. <laughs> right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash EZRA. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Your previous book was heavily, I mean, it was about the drug war, but it was heavily about opioids. Yeah. And I'm curious how much the work on that fed into the work on this. Totally. Massively. I I was very afraid of looking at my story about depression, right? I had gone to my doctor when I was a teenager. You know, I'd explained that I was in this very deep pain. And my doctor had told me this exclusively biological story about why I felt that way. He said, there's this chemical in your brain that's missing. It's called serotonin. That's why you feel like this. And just being given a story about my distress in itself was an enormous source of relief. It's like suddenly a wild animal's attacking you and suddenly it's put on a leash. You understand where it is. But my experience of chemical antidepressants, which was not untypical, is not, I learned later, I thought I was weird, is actually not untypical, was I felt, you know, some relief for a while, but the pain came back. I kept jacking up my dose until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years. And at the end of that, I was still quite depressed. And I knew that the story I had, that depression is just caused by a chemical imbalance, was not working for me. But when you've got a story about your distress, even if it doesn't work very well, it does something for you, right? You feel at least you understand what's going on. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to go and interview all these people and try, and try to find a different story if I hadn't done the research for my book, Chasing the Scream, where I learned that actually there's a very different story about addiction. Uh, the, the, the story we have, in, that I, had, I grew up, as you know, there was a lot of addiction in my family. And I had thought the addiction in my family, I thought I understood it. And I had a quite simple story about it, you know, and it's the story I think most people implicitly have about addiction and that has really taken a, had a comeback since the opioid crisis, I think, mistakenly. So we think if we kidnap the next 20 people on Connecticut Avenue to walk past, you know, your offices and we forcibly injected them all with heroin for a month, at the end of that month, they would all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies, you know, at the end of that would desperately need and they'd have this desperate kind of physical hunger for heroin at the end of it. That's what I thought I'd literally seen in my own family. But one of the first things that alerted me, in fact, saying not right about that story is when it was explained to me in Britain, not in the United States, but in Britain, if I step out into the street and I get run over by a truck and I break my hip... I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of a drug called diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than you'd score around the corner from here because it's medically pure heroin, right? Um, people in British hospitals are given that for quite long periods. If anyone listening to this has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has taken a lot of heroin. If 
addiction is just the result of exposure to the chemical hooks. What should be happening to all these people in hospitals in Britain? Significant numbers of them should be becoming addicted. This has been looked at very carefully. It's exceptionally rare. And when I learned that, I just, it seemed to me so strange and so peculiar. I didn't really understand it. And I only really understood it when I went to Vancouver and met this amazing professor, Bruce Alexander, who did an experiment that I think should really have transformed how we think about addiction. So Professor Alexander explained to me this theory we have about chem chemical hooks are real, but this theory that they dominate, that they're the primary driver of addiction, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Um, you take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself. You might remember the famous advert in the 1980s from Partnership for Drug Free America that showed this experiment. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We're putting the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of colored balls and grain and wheels, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course they try both, but this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So so you put in, in Chasing the Scream a lot of weight on this study. And, and I want to be honest that, that when I read this, and, and I'm familiar with the Rat Park studies, there is a skepticism that arises for me. Because if you look at the opioid crisis in America, if you look at a lot of drug crises in America, and, and I have people, as I know you do in, in, in your family, who have been badly addicted, not in my case to opioids, but to other things. And... A lot of them live in human rat park. Um, they're well off. They have families who love them. They have friends. They are not lonesome. They do not hate their jobs. I mean, and you go down the line, right? Like, was Philip Seymour Hoffman not living in human rat park? Was Prince not living in human rat park? And so I, I don't want to say that that's not true. Obviously, when what you're doing is comparing it to the study where you live in a cage with heroin water and normal water and nothing else versus rat park, like, I think that is telling us something important. But how much weight you can put on that, given what we are seeing around us, um, given what I've seen in my own life, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there certainly are people who are doing everything in their power to get off of the substances that addict them because they want to live their life. They want to be a good partner to their spouse. They want to be a good family member, a good friend, all these different things. They, they do like their life and they can't do it. And so there's something about the Rat Park story at least with too much weight, that doesn't ring true to me. I think there's a few things there. I think the points you raise are really important. One is, I started to think a lot, I had a lot of people say to me, both about this book and about in relation to Chasing the Scream, but I know this person who has everything they could possibly want and they're still depressed or addicted, so this can't be right. One of the things that I began to think about in relation to that was, I read a lot of early 60s feminist texts and a very common thing then was that women would go to their doctor and they'd say, doctor, I've got this, this, there's something really wrong with me. They would have said their nerves at the time, not their brain. Something really wrong with my nerves because I've got everything a woman could possibly want. I've got a house and a car. I've got a washing machine. I've got two kids. I've got a husband who doesn't beat me. But I still feel terrible. And what happened is these doctors would bio very often biologize it and say, you're right, and give them Valium or whatever. Now, if we could go back in time what we would say to those women is, right, you've got everything you could possibly want by the standards of the culture, but the standards of the culture were just wrong. You needed much more than that. And in a similar way, there, very often when I meet people who say, well, I've got everything I could possibly want, they'll say something like, I've got, it literally happened to me the other night. In New York, a guy said, I've got everything I could possibly want. He was a Wall Street banker. 
when we talked about his actual day-to-day -day life, he thought, I've got everything I could want. I'm earning loads of money. In fact, hour by hour, his life was awful, right? Now, I don't know, obviously don't know specific individuals we're talking about, but there was this weird disjunction where he was simultaneously thought he had everything you need, and yet he didn't have what human let, beings Let me ask need. this question in a different right. way to, you, to, to, to draw this out, because I want to see where, where the boundaries of this are for you. Sure. Do you believe that there are people who actually do have what they want? They're, they're not confused about what they want. They're not living in a social construct of what they should want, but in fact, it, it is not really what brings them happiness. They have what they want. They have a good life, you know, a reasonable good life given what, you know, he, we're human beings. It's a fallen, it's a fallen species. <laughs> and they are still depressed. They are still anxious. They are still addicted. Do you believe that always and everywhere these things are a reflection of some kind of societal or material sickness? Or do you believe that there are cases where you are dealing with maybe it's a chemical imbalance, maybe it's a chemical hook, whatever it might be? So I want to separate out the chemical imbalance from the chemical hook. Sure, that's, so, that's reasonable. So, but the, I think this is a really important question that I put to lots of the experts that I interview because you're right, there do seem to be people like that. I've known people like that. And that used to be thought, if you go back to the debate in the 60s and 70s, quite a lot of it would say there were two kinds of depression. There was what, called, what was called reactive depression, which is where you were responding to some of the things we're talking about. There's something they called endogenous depression, which is just, you know, mysterious biological fault. And actually, some of the people who did the most detailed research on this were Professor George Brown and Dr. Tyrrell Harris, who amazingly are still alive. George Brown is nearly 90, and I went and interviewed them. And they did this research where they looked at people who were diagnosed with reactive depression and people who were diagnosed with endogenous depression. And what they found is actually the people with endogenous depression had the same things play. There actually wasn't that much difference. That they often they they almost always had something playing out in their life. Um, but that could just be that they were not that good at detecting this stuff. Truth is, we don't know. What we do know, well, there's several things we can say. So pr everyone agreed, if pure endogenous depression exists it's an absolutely tiny amount of what we currently call depression, right? So it may exist, and there I couldn't find scientists who would speak definitively to this. Some said they think there is no endogenous depression, people like Professor Joanna Moncrief, but most people said there is probably some endogenous depression, but it's a small amount of what would be presented in, in medical fields, um, it would be presented to, to doctors. It's important to stress as well, there are, there are real biological factors that make people more sensitive to these things. So there's a very broad scientific consensus. There are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety in most mental health problems. There's uh, biological causes like your genes, real brain changes. They shouldn't be characterized as a chemical imbalance, but there are real brain changes that I talk about in the book. Psychological causes, how you think about yourself and your place in the world, and then social causes, which we've talked about a lot. And biology, I think, is a really was a really fascinating one. There was... Um, so, for example, genes. But I thought about this a lot because my mother had been very depressed and her mother before her. And it was part of me that thought, well, was I just born depressed, right? Was it, I was just born with this problem? It's a really interesting study by Professor Absalom Caspi. It's the most detailed study we have. It was an enormous New Zealand population study uh, looking at all sorts of things. And it identified a specific gene that does correlate with depression. It's called the H5TT gene. But what's fascinating is what, what he found was if you have that gene and you go through something traumatic or you become acutely lonely, you are significantly more likely to become depressed. But if you didn't go through something traumatic and you didn't become acutely lonely, you were no more likely to become depressed than anyone else. And this seems to be the kind of broader understanding of the genetics of depression and anxiety. It increases your sensitivity to the things we're talking about by between 30 and 40%. But so by a really significant amount, 
but it's not the primary cause or driver. Now, there may also be endogenous depression. Just to go to the chemical hooks, yes. thing, I think that's quite separate from, from this. So chemical hooks are real. We can measure how real they are. There's an interesting, um, well, there's an experiment that lots of people listening to this podcast will be taking part in now. Um, when So we know the, the uh, chemical hook in cigarettes that makes people physically crave it is nicotine, right? This has been known for a really long time. And in the early 1990s, when they're about to first market nicotine patches, there's this huge wave of optimism because they're like, oh, we're going to give smokers all of the chemical they're addicted to with none of the filthy carcinogenic smoke loads people are going to stop. And the U.S. Surgeon General's report in 1992 found 17 percent of people given nicotine patches and who are motivated stop. Right. That's a really significant amount. If you just meet the chemical hook and you've got motivation, that's a really significant number of people. If we can reduce smoking by 17%, that saves millions of people's lives globally. But that still leaves 83% where something else is going on. So chemical hooks are very real. Physical withdrawal is very real. But it's not the primary driver. We know this because, you know, we could go in D.C. tonight to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous, right? And if we sit down there, they will be as addicted as the guys in the next room from Narcotics Anonymous. But you don't snort a roulette wheel. You don't inject a pack of cards, right? If you can have all of the addiction and none of the chemical hooks, that tells us that chemical hooks can't be the primary driver. Now, they contribute for sure, but they're not the primary driver. But but are they... Two questions on this. One is, hmm. there's this question of addictive personalities um, and, and anxious personalities. And, and, and I realize that I'm kind of running your two books together here. No, well, they're, but, they're related, but, but, but in the stories, you're sort of sure. taking one and, and, and the other as well. Um, one of the things that I, I think is, I'll, I'll speak for my own life, virtually everyone in my family has very serious anxiety issues. Um, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of folks in my family, they, they do not deal with anxiety the way other people do. And nor do I. Um, compared to other people I know, when things get very stressful, I have more of an anxious response. Um, now, it's not the end of the world, but, but it does seem that there is some way that I deal with anxiety that, say, my wife doesn't. Um, similarly, I know people who are addicted to alcohol and whatever is happening to them when they drink a beer is not happening to me. I mean, it, it takes me to, to get drunk. Like I gotta be, I gotta set that out on my to-do list. Like I gotta like work at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I don't, it is not compulsive to me. Um, same thing with cigarettes. I've never had a cigarette and then needed another ever. I've just never, whatever is pulling the hook. There's something about the way I agree. It's not just chemical hooks, but, but there do seem to be ways in which we have, predilections to different things. And one of the things that I wondered reading your book, um, and, and when you tell the story of, and this is now pulling it back to depression, but when you tell the story of, look, you know, when you look at what's going on in people's lives, a lot of these people who we would say have this endogenous depression, actually, they've got bad stuff going on in their lives too. But I just wonder if you look at all of our lives, I mean, human life is complicated. There, there, there's always bad stuff going on. And so it, it seems to me that there, there's a, there are those of us who have extreme events happening, but but for a lot of us, it seems to be about how do you respond to the daily grind of existence? And now maybe that daily grind is societally too much, right? Maybe there are ways we can make, make, make for a better construct, right? I feel less anxious when things in my life are less anxious. But the, the, there is something here where I'm, what I want to draw out is, okay, is this all society and all our environment or are some of us in a different place than others oh it's definitely not all society and definitely not all environment and there's no scientific i, I literally didn't find anyone who thinks it's all society 
everyone who argues that there are these significant social causes like the World Health Organization point out there are also significant biological and psychological components. But in terms of what you're saying about the daily grind, I don't think we should take too much of that daily grind as a given, right? There, it's amenable to social change. So I'll give you an example that connects with some really interesting work you've done and I know your wife is writing about. So in Canada in the 1970s, they did this really interesting experiment. They chose a town, apparently at random, it's called Dauphin, it's about people who know Can um, Canada, it's about four hours out of Winnipeg in Manitoba. And they said to a huge number of people in this town, from now on, we are going to give you a universal basic income. You're going to get the equivalent of $15,000 a year in, I think it was monthly installments, and there's nothing you have to do in return for it, and there's nothing you can do that means we'll take this away from you. And it was monitored very closely. It's the best expert on this woman I interviewed called Dr. Evelyn Forget. Many fascinating things happened, but to me the most important was there was a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. Uh, mental health problems that were so serious people had to be hospitalised fell by 9%, right? We know people with an income from property... By 9%, you said? Yeah, by 9%. Over three years, you won't find an introduction of a drug that le leads to a fall in 9% of, you know, really severe problems that's comparable to that. As Dr. Evelyn Forget said to me, that's an antidepressant, right? That's what we should think of as an antidepressant, alongside chemical antidepressants. That so, doesn't seem that big to me. Am 9%? I wrong? 9% fall in people who were so... I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. ...hospitalized, yeah. That's interesting. So that, that's big, but but given the, what a UBI is, the size of it, in some ways I would have expected that to be bigger. Well, it's $15,000 a year. No one quit their job, for mm -hmm. example. No one. It's not an enormous UBI. It's a relatively modest yeah. one. You, equivalent of 15000 today's money, obviously, back then $15,000 would have been a fortune. I think... So we know, for example, that people who have an income from property are 10 times less likely to develop an anxiety disorder than people who don't. There's been a study that demonstrated that. Again, of course, there are many things that cause anxiety. It's not the only thing. But I think that tells them, when you're in a society, we're in a society where more than half of people don't have $500 they've managed to set aside for if a crisis comes along. You can see how that causes a tremendous amount of anxiety. Now, you could just take that as a given and say, well, that's the nature of the society. But actually, most societies don't function like that. A UBI is one of many examples that I talk about in the book where we could alter that functioning of the society in a way that would reduce some of the causes of depression and anxiety. Do you see what I mean? That I do. I don't think we should take these things as just the functioning of a kind of well, neoliberal well, society well, as a given. To your point about the functioning of a neoliberal society, I mean, I, I read a lot of this book as a critique of capitalism of some of the incentives or some of the effects of, of, of how capitalism structures a society in ways that, that, that we often don't think of. Is, is, that a, is that a fair read of it? Yeah, I'm a social democrat, so I believe in markets should exist. They're a really important part of the economy, but they shouldn't be everything. I also think that the, um, the unit that competes in the marketplace should not be the corporation. It should be democratic cooperatives. I think that's really worth saying. And this, to me, is one of the most shocking aspects of what I learned about. And it really connects back to what we were saying before about tribes and the need for tribes. I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to look at evidence about how do people feel about their work. And the facts are pretty shocking, actually. Gallup did the most detailed study in the United States. What they found is 13% of us like our work most of the time. 63% of what they called sleepworking. They don't like their work, they don't hate their work. And 24% of people hate their work and fear it, right? So you think about that means... 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. It's quite an extraordinary figure. And you're almost twice as likely to hate your work as like your work. So I started to think, well, could that have some relationship? Wait, uh, sorry, I just want to go back through that. Yeah. So 
the bulk of those people there, you said, were they were kind of neutral on their work, correct? Yeah. yeah. So it's like 87% of people either hate their work or just are kind of bleh about it. Or just tolerating it. Right, yes, okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and I thought, well, could this be having some effect on our mental health? So I started to look at, at the evidence around, well, how does work affect mental health? There's an amazing Australian social scientist called Professor Michael Marmot, who I got to know, who made a real breakthrough on this in the 1970s. I can explain how, if you like, but just to give the headline, because the story of how he discovered it is fascinating. But just to give you the headline, he discovered the key factor that causes depression at work actually makes you even more likely to have a heart attack by quite a significant amount, is if you feel you are controlled at work. If you go to work and you feel you have low or no control, you are significantly more likely to become depressed and to have a stress-related heart attack. And I think that relates to, I'm going a little bit beyond what Professor Marmot says now, I think that relates to what we were saying before about psychological needs. Humans need to feel their lives are meaningful, right? And if you're controlled, that disrupts your ability to create meaning out of it. But I actually misunderstood what Professor Marmot was telling me the first few times I went. I thought he was saying, okay, so you've got this elite 13% who are going to enjoy their work like you and me, they're going to be okay, and everyone else is condemned to the shit, right? And I thought about my family. My dad's a bus driver, my mom worked in, in, in a refuge, my brother's a delivery guy, my grandmother cleaned toilets. I thought, wait, are we saying they're just condemned to be controlled? And he said to me, no, Johan, you're misunderstanding. It's not the work that makes you depressed, it's being controlled at work. So I started looking at people who try to work in a different way. Uh, and it's important, I just want to preface this by saying, I'm not saying that individuals should do this. I'm saying we can change the society so more people are free to do it. So in Baltimore, not far from here, I interviewed a woman called Meredith Keogh. She's a fascinating person. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety about the week ahead. With her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a teenager. Insecure, controlled work. And one day, Josh and his colleagues just said... What does our boss actually do? They liked their boss. He wasn't a bad guy, but they were like, we fix all the bikes. They didn't like the experience of having a boss. They set up a store, successful business called Baltimore Bicycle Works, which works on a different principle. It's a democratic cooperative. I went to see lots of democratic cooperatives around the world. Um, so they don't have a boss. They take the big decisions about the business together by voting. They share the profits. They share out the good tasks and the shitty tasks so no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. And it was fascinating talking to the people there, which completely in line with Professor Marmot's findings, how many of them talked about how depressed and anxious they'd been in their previous work, but were not depressed and anxious now. Now, it's important to say, it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went to become Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before they fixed bikes now. What they got rid of was that factor of control. And as Josh said to me, you know, the modern corporation is a very recent invention, right? There is no, re it doesn't, eat, it's not even the most economically efficient. Actually, a study at Cornell University found more democratic businesses on average grow four times faster than top-down businesses. Imagine how many people you know who are depressed and anxious who would feel very differently if tomorrow they were going into a workplace where they set the priorities with their colleagues, where they could use their creativity, where if there is a boss, he's accountable to them, not the other way around. So, so let, me, let yeah. me ask you the obvious neoliberal question about this. <laughs> so if so, I, I've done work on democratic co-ops, sure, sure, which I think are really interesting yeah. structure. And... If you go back in the literature of democratic cooperatives, they're sort of they're they're always like the thing that we hope will take over, right? And so you mentioned this, co the, this Cornell study, right? Okay, if, if democratic cooperatives are four times more efficient and productive than more traditional forms of corporation, and also if everybody there is happier, so they're going to attack the best talent, and and talent is just literally everything. As somebody who started a company, if you don't have the best talent, you die. Um, why have they not taken over the economy? Why are we not all working for democratic cooperatives? Because they're incredible. It's like saying 
if a society where women are freer is a better and more flourishing society, why does patriarchy persist, right? It's because they're extraordinarily powerful vested interests. We don't live in a society... But how are they keeping them down? Don't, don't just, like, don't just throw the long ball here, like... Walk me through it. Like it, 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 this, this is a big advantage, right? And they're they're working, right? As you say, they're they're down in Baltimore, right? They're there. They could start more by co-ops. I don't I don't know of a barrier to them doing it. The 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 the, the fear I have around some of these solutions is that we look at individual cases that go really well, right? There are, there are there are individual bike stores that are unbelievably great, right? They're just individual places with great cultures, and then sometimes they're hard to scale up. So when you were saying that that these work better. If that's such a big solution, then then why hasn't it caught on? I think you're asking the most astute and 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 challenging question, that one that kept occurring to me. There was someone who I think really helped me to understand this. It's a guy who I call in the book Joe because he asked me not to use his real name. Joe works in a paint store in Philly. And he actually approached me because he'd uh, seen a TED talk I gave about addiction. And he thought he wanted to talk to me about addiction. I happened to be in Philly while, while he emailed me. So I said, oh, let's meet up because I thought it was interesting. So he worked in a paint store where his job... He was uh, a little bit younger than me. I think he was in his early 30s. I met him a couple of years ago. He worked in a paint store where his job is to turn up at 8 a.m. People come in with their orders, um, and his job is to say, what shade do you want? And he has to put the paint in a machine that shakes it to make sure it's got an even consistency, take their money, and then they leave, right? And he found this... It was a curious thing. He both found it soul-destroying, and he was incredibly apologetic about how bad he felt about it. He kept saying, but I know I'm really lucky. I know I'm really lucky. And he had, for a time, started taking um, Oxy, and he developed an addiction to Oxy, and I think it was because it made him feel as blank as the work, right? It made him feel as numb to get through it. But he'd actually overcome his Oxy addiction, and now he was just really, really depressed, right? And Joe didn't have any kids. He didn't have any particular commitments. And he said to me, there's this thing I really want to do. I love fishing. He'd fished in, like, I can't remember, 20 of of the states or something. And he said, I went to Florida and I thought I could be a fishing guide in Florida and I'd earn a third of what I currently earn and yet I'd be really happy. And I said to him, but Joe, why don't you go to Florida then? And he started saying, well, you know, I know this isn't right, but maybe if I get a bigger garage, I'll be happy. He started saying these things. And as soon as he said them, he said, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. And this mystery of Joe, I think, is related to the mystery you're saying. At some level, we know the things that will make us happy. Now, not everyone knows about the option of democratic cooperatives. Not everyone knows about the option of social prescribing in East London. But when people hear about it, it seems obvious, and yet we don't do it. I think it relates to what Professor Kasser found about junk values, that we live in a system that is constantly, as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live under a system that's constantly diverting us from what's meaningful about life. It's constantly telling us, no, just go back like Joe. Actually, just buy one more thing and you're going to feel better. That's not a fully satisfying answer because I don't think I got to the bottom of the mystery you're asking about. I think it's a really important question. But I think that there's a hint of the answer in there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Listening to you makes me make a 
connection I haven't quite made before. So, so as I talk this through, I'm talking through the first time, and it, it may come out unclear. Have you have you read or are you familiar with Robert Wright's book, um, Why Buddhism is True? Yeah, yeah, I've heard him talk about it. I haven't read it. So it, it's a fascinating book. And, and putting aside the Buddhism side of it, what he is arguing in that book, and he's a fantastic um, sci- science journalist over the years, is it basically our brains are poorly developed to make us happy. His idea of why Buddhism is true, what he means by that is that Buddhism has a critique of what is going wrong in our minds that is accurate. And it takes this tremendous, consistent application of effort to overcome a sort of mental programming. So in your book, is almost the inverse of his. Hmm, that's really interesting. Your book is often about, well, look back to how we were on the savannah. We were connected to each other in groups. We were outside a lot. I mean, look, look at all the ways. If we were more like that, we'd be happier. And his book is actually diff- is the opposite. He said, look at what the brain has been trying to do forever. It has been creating a productive form of dissatisfaction from the perspective of reproduction. So if we got the things we wanted and then stopped, that might make us happy but it wouldn't be good for the species. And, and so his argument is that the value of mindfulness, value of this kind of consistent application of, of, of watching what is happening in your own in your own psyche is recognizing all the ways in which you are driving yourself to unhappiness. So, so you say here, okay, Joe is embedded in this society that is bad for him and it is making him want another garage. And I think Robert Wright would say, actually the reason these things that we think would make us happy and maybe even would make us happy don't is that our mental hardware, our mental software, is not built for us to be happy in that way. The, the, the dissatisfaction, status competition, acquisition, that's very, very, very deep in us. Now, it's being oriented in different ways now, but part of the reason societies have taken the path they are is that these paths, for better and oftentimes for worse, are along the same uh, grooves that actually exist I- I- in our brains now. And so, the idea that we could solve it um, is maybe not wrong, but it requires taking more seriously the ways in which we will fight against those solutions. I think that's a really smart, I really like the way you put that. And I discussed this with a lot of the people that I interviewed, which is why there is a chapter about meditation and mindfulness. And as you were saying that, I kept thinking about some of the most exciting research I learned about that was some of the most challenging to me. So as you know, until the mid-60s, there was a lot of research into giving psychedelics to people with depression, alcoholism. They weren't done to the standards we want to do studies today, but they were very promising. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Nixon shuts it all down, and it ends. And it reopened in the last decade. So I went and interviewed the teams that have done this psychedelic research in at UCLA, NYU, at Johns Hopkins up the road in Baltimore, at the University of London, and in Sao Paulo in Norway. And I learned loads of things that I thought were really interesting, but and they've discovered there is something really promising here, but I think it's a little subset that really relates to what you're saying about, about Robin Wright and his, his, his book. Um, so I'll give you an example. John Hopkins did a study where they took people who were chronic long-term smokers. So like my mother, right? There's a photograph of me and my mother where she's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach, right? And when I showed her this photo about a year ago when I found it, she said, you were a difficult baby. I needed that fucking cigarette. But anyway... They took people like my mother who tried to quit in loads of ways and they gave them, I think it was three doses of psilocybin, the active, do- the active component of magic mushrooms, over, I think, six months. It might, get, might be a bit less than six months. And what they found is 80% of them stopped smoking, which was extraordinary. But they found there was a subset of the findings which relates to lots of these studies, which I thought was particularly interesting. So when people take um, psilocybin, most people get what we would regard as an intense spiritual experience, right? They feel deeply connected to 
the people around them, the world. It, I should note, these are pretty high-dose studies. Very high-dose. Because yeah. I think when most people take psilocybin, <laughs> I just, having done looked at a lot of this research, one of the things that I think some people be like, I took mushrooms once and I just saw, like, these yeah. studies, you get you get spiritual level dosing. Yeah, there's, there's, there's three ranges of the dosing and you yeah. never know which one you're going to get in the three different, yeah. but you can figure it out almost immediately, <laughs> basically, right? That, that's the problem with doing this research. It's very hard to have a control group. Exactly. There, yeah, that's a very good point. But but one of the sub-findings, which I think it actually gets around some of the control group, which I can exp problems which are very real, is different people have different intensity of their spiritual experience, right? So some people have a super intense spiritual experience and some people just don't have any, right? It's rare, but it doesn't... What they found is the positive effects for things like addiction recovery, depression recovery, were directly correlated with the intensity of the spiritual experience. So if you had no spiritual experience, you didn't stop smoking, you didn't have recovery from these problems. And if you had a super intense, your recovery tended to last longer. And I think that tells us something really interesting, that there's a danger that with a debate about these drugs, it becomes like the debate about chemical antidepressants, where people say, you know, oh, this flips a switch in your brain. I don't think that's right at all. What it gives you is a kind of spiritual learning experience that you can be in the world and be significantly less egotistical and be significantly more connected. But Robin Carhart Harris, who did the depression study at the University of London, said to me, gave me an example. There was a woman in the depression trial. She um, was given massive relief from her depression when she took psilocybin. And then she went back to her office job in a horrible English seaside town where it was simply not possible to live in a way that was compatible with the insights the psilocybin had given her. She'd learned we're all connected, we're all equal, the natural world is beautiful, and if you try living like that in your office job in Western Supermare, you're going to be talked out of it very fast, right? So what these things, what these drugs show us, and I think this is partly related to Robin Wright, is that, because um, meditation brings us to a similar place as psilocybin, obviously, much slower. I think one guy said to me, you know, it's like the difference between the starter ski slope and like the Olympic ski slope, right? If they take us to the same place, um, they, sh they, they, can, they are teaching lessons about different ways of living. But I would be reluctant to, I think that I'm going to read Robin Wright's book now and I, I've been meaning to read it for a while. Or you and everyone else can go back and listen to the podcast ah. I did with him a couple months ago. <laughs> I think, I think what, I would be very reluctant to get into a mode that just says, you see, you're right, it is in some ways the inverse of what I'm saying. If he's saying our brains are poorly designed, and there is some truth in that, I'm not disputing that. I'm saying our societies are poorly designed for happiness, right? Um, that, that was not the, the purpose of causing them. And the reason I'm slightly wary of this argument, although there is truth in it, and I don't want to say I'm rejecting it out of court because there are lots of important insights in this, in this wider argument, which I'm familiar with, although I haven't read his specific book. For example, in Britain, there's been a huge push by the Conservative government to promote cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy tells people, I'm giving the crudest possible take on it. There are some more sophisticated CBT practitioners. But the reason you're depressed is because you think about your life in the wrong way. And it's about training your mind to repattern your thoughts, right? It's like a very neoliberal form of meditation. And... To be fair, nowadays, meditation is often a very neal <laughs> meditation. Yeah, the moment when Rupert Murdoch took, took up transcendental meditation, I thought, right, something's gone wrong here, right? Rupert Murdoch is not what the Buddha... I mean, I'm all, I'm all for meditation, but mm. there's a lot of meditation for productivity, sure. meditation yeah, yeah. for anxiety. It's, it's a coping. It, there, there are versions of it that are about exploration, versions of it that are about coping. Well, exactly. Actually, I want to say something about that in a second. But if we think about CBT, right? Now, there are... Look, there's a big psychological component to depression and anxiety. That's very real. It's really important to acknowledge it. CBT does... There is scientific evidence CBT gives some relief. It tends to be short-term relief. And to be fair, the best, the best uh, advocate of CBT, Professor Richard Layard, says it should be paired with social change. But 
I'm just very wary. Let's think about that farmer in Cambodia, right? Imagine saying to him, working in that field where he'd been blown up and he's in a lot of pain because of his leg, you know, the problem here is how you think about your situation. We're going to train your thoughts to work differently. You know, he needed a change in his life. He didn't need to change his thoughts. And so I'm, I am don't want to ascribe to Robin Wright that view because I don't think he holds it. But do you see the point I'm making? Yeah, but this, this is actually, it's funny because in some ways we're, we're converging on the same point. This is why I'm trying to draw out more of your radicalism than you're giving me. <laughs> But I keep saying, well, this is a real critique of how society is yeah. built. It's a real critique of how capitalism exists in it. The, the reason I'm saying that is that, to be honest, I, I, I really loved the book and I found the solutions package pretty unpersuasive. It's really interesting. And, and, and the reason is that hard problems are really hard. Now, one thing I liked in the back end is that you kind of say, listen, if some of these solutions like a UBI seem too big to you, well, maybe the problem is just really big. But there, there are parts of it where it's like, well, this group of people got together to do a garden like this group of people, um, you know, got together and, uh, you know, went to Internet rehab or this group of people reconstructed a bike shop. But it's just their bike shop now. And, you know, so now they're happy. And the reason I'm pushing you a little bit on, well, OK, if the solutions are that near at hand, why haven't they worked? Because I actually don't believe the reason we don't have co-op bike shops is that. You know, the sort of big bike has been destroying all of them. And I don't believe the reason we yeah. don't have more people gardening is, is some kind of out, outside interference we one of the hard things that I think we're actually running up against is that these things don't fit in the grooves of our psyches. They, they often cut against them now. Yeah. And, and the problem with some forms of capitalism, the problems with many forms of our society is that they're going with our psyches, but in a bad place. And I think that we have a tendency to want to say um, good things are good, right? Like good things kind of all line up good. Um, and I think there are places like that. People spending more time outside makes them happier. Good things are good. And then there are places where good things are hard sometimes. They take work that, that, that we're not built to be happy in the same way. And so to say, okay, well, this would work. Well, actually, people have these very, very, very powerful status impulses. And on the one hand, yeah, you can blame advertising. And, and in your book, to some degree, you do. But also, advertising is working with hardware we have. The reason advertising is effective, the reason social media is effective in the way it is, is that it's working with this kind of obsession we internally have for very deep reasons about how we fit into our tribe. And fighting that is not just giving people an alternative. I mean, it is tough. Uh, you, you're talking about reconstructing a society by saying, okay, we have a different view of what human beings need. In some cases, that view is about actually overwhelming things that are, are, are deep in us, and we're going to have to reconstruct that deeply. To go back to, to, to Buddhism as an example, it's not an accident that monasteries, that, that the place you go and you really practice Buddhism, are cut off from society, right? It's that level of radicalism to try to stop things from queuing up all these mental processes. Um, this has been a long answer, and I'm about to make it longer, um, or no, question, I guess. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating <laughs> um, point. We, we've now entered the Ezra Klein monologue of the <laughs> no, Ezra I really Klein like show. What you're saying. So this has been sort of hinted at on the show. So I've gone to Burning Man a couple of times and I don't talk about it that much because people have very weird ideas about it. But the reason I like it is or, or have liked it um, is that it's an interesting space where you enter into a society constructed around different premises for a week. And, you know, I think when, when people think of it, they think about like people dancing naked in the desert and there is some of that. Um, but. There are no, I mean, maybe now there are, but but there are no phones. And because other people aren't on their phones, you are not tempted to look at your phone, right? And, and that's a powerful thing, that things are structured in a way where the cues you're getting are very different. 
And, and, and so you feel differently. Like, it is interesting. I mean, it's a society that is internally consistent and coherent unto itself, but tilted 15 degrees on its axis. How, how do you feel different when you're there as well? Yeah, I, you feel a lot calmer. Um, it, it is, it, or I do anyway, um, or have. Um, it, but the, the reason I bring it up in this context is that to do that, it is this incredibly radical reconstruction, right? You're out in this fucking crazy environment that is trying to kill you and, you know, everything is totally different. And it's partially why I'm skeptical that we can just tweak a dial. You can just add a, I mean, a UBI isn't just tweaking a dial, but you can add a UBI, have more worker cooperatives, try to have more things where communities get together and do volunteerism together because there is so much queuing us and once you fall into the into the queue, you know, once you, you know, oh, they're looking at their phone. I wonder if something's in my email. It's very hard to get out of it. And so that's the place where I think that your book is is pretty profound critique of society, more so honestly than you're letting on in this conversation. To, to, no, to fix the things a, you're talking yeah. about, the solutions would have to be quite radical. I think that's a fair point. The solutions, which are the last third of the book, I tried to argue in the book alike, almost like, a direction on a compass in which we might travel rather than a political program of solutions. Because there's actually been an incredibly, incredibly little research on solutions to the social and psychological causes of depression and anxiety. And I really like the way you just put all that. And I think there's so many interesting things in it. I think you're absolutely right. And Professor Kasser showed this, the guy who did the junk values research, that extrinsic values crowd out intrinsic values very quickly. And you're right. They appeal to both parts of us, just like we all have kind and cruel aspects of us. We all have intrinsic and extrinsic aspects of us, and they're drawn out in different contexts. I think you're right that it is a deep crisis. I also think you're right that it's, I would say it's an anti-corporate critique rather than an anti-capitalist critique, because I would still have, if you put me in charge of the universe, I would still have a very significant aspect of the economy that would be market competition. It wouldn't be as much as it is now. It would work differently. The unit of market competition would be democratic cooperatives rather than corporations. But So I don't think it's totally anti-capitalist. But I think you're right. It's a very deep societal crisis. I think, though, that can easily produce a kind of uh, deep pessimism in people that I think is partly a symptom of our collective depression. I'm not that pessimistic about this. I think there are enormous challenges. But one of the things that encourages me is that these insights are very close to the surface in almost everyone, right? At times, I thought my book was both a really radical critique and astonishingly banal, if I'm honest, right? If we stopped someone on the street outside your office and we said, hey, do you think being acutely lonely, having a meaningless job, having being financially insecure and go down the great long list of all the things I found evidence to cause depression. Do you think those things make you more likely to be depressed? They'd look at us like we were idiots. They'd say, duh, of course, right? But we're in this weird situation where Chomsky has this lovely concept he calls de-education. He says, if you stop someone in the street and say, is the American government lying to you? Uh, so this is pre-Trump, so let's say pre-Trump. You still say, is the American government lying to you? The average American goes, yeah, of course. If you stop the faculty at Harvard, most of them would say, well, they'd equivocate much more. They're much more heavily propagandized into the system. So he calls it de-education, that the higher up you go in the education system, the more you unlearn the things that actually everyone knows instinctively, right? That's kind of obvious to the guy in the street. I think there's a similar thing happening with depression, that most people instinctively know that depression is a response to life and it needs to be solved in people's lives and they need help and support in their lives to change things. And yet 
what we had was this process of indoctrination. We were, we were told this ridiculously simplistic story that it's a chemical imbalance in your brain, which incredibly, you know, as one expert put to me, you can't even say that story was discredited because there was never a time when it was credited, right? There was never a time when half of the scientists in the field believed depression was just caused by low serotonin in people's brains. But this alternate story, now I stress again, that doesn't mean I'm opposed to chemical antidepressants which have some value and do give some relief to people, but What's so important about that, I think, is that if you tell people it's just a problem in your brain, it's purely biological, what that does is it divorces them from this conversation that we've been having. It divorces them from seeing the deeper causes of their pain. I actually think it's more stigmatizing. I think it's really freeing from stigma to say to people, you're not crazy. It's not you. Actually, um, you're not a, you know, a machine with broken parts. Most of what's going on here is that you're a human being with unmet needs. And once we have that different understanding of what's going on, but the other thing that I think is the kind of missing aspect of where, where I think we do slightly disagree, maybe we don't disagree, but when you were saying before, well, why is this stuff not happening if it, if it works better? You have a society of people who are profoundly exhausted. The average person answers their first email at 7.48 a.m. and they clock off at 7.15 p.m., and they get, what is it, two weeks of vacation a year on average. My mother, my sister, would agree with absolutely everything I say, and they don't have a damn thing they can do about it, right? Because they are constantly working, they're exhausted, they're ragged, and the idea that when they get home collapsing from their work, I'm going to say to them, your job now is to democratise your workplace and, and you know fight for universal basic income would be actually cruel, right? So I think part of the issue is it's not like the system is rational, it works for us, and we're not, I don't, I'm caricaturing your argument here, I know that's not what you were saying, but one could, you could imagine someone saying, the, the, you know, the system is rational, it works for people, that's why they're not choosing the alternatives. I think there's a much more, you know, de facto bias. If you have a culture which is run by corporations who have the instruments of propaganda overwhelmingly, I mean, for example, let's think about something more banal, labour unions, the lives of ordinary Americans would be massively enhanced if the labour union movement had not been destroyed, Right. The reason the labor movement was destroyed was not because it rationally American citizens made a calculation that labor unions were bad for them and they were dismantled. It's because extremely powerful forces at the top assaulted the labor movement, led a massively powerful propaganda campaign against the labor movement and destroyed it from above. I think there's more of an analogy. I wouldn't go quite that far with all these other things, but there's more of an analogy. There are forces at the top of American society that when these things begin to emerge, and they're very nascent at the moment, clearly, obviously. You know, one thing that really made me think a lot about this is exactly a year ago, or a little bit more than a year ago, a year and a couple of weeks, I was invited by you know, Peter Thiel. I think you know him, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Peter Thiel, people who don't know, the PayPal gazillionaire who funded the, the Trump campaign, I was invited uh, by him to go to this, he'd organized a day-long conference for people developing apps about how to deal with anxiety, depression, and addiction. And I was looking for an excuse to go to San Francisco anyway, so I went. And it was totally fascinating because there were these very distinguished scientists, all of whom are admirable people, and I spoke to lots of them. And if all you knew about addiction, depression, and anxiety was this day-long conference, you would have thought, that they were just spontaneous brain disorders. All we did was spend one person in passing mentioned childhood trauma. That was the one external reference point, right? And I was the last person to speak, I think just by coincidence. And I was trying to think, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, that Peter Thiel, who is the 1% of the 1%, I'm not suggesting any conscious agency on his part in relation to this, but I don't think it's a coincidence 
the whole machine, as the society becomes more unequal, more broken up, more, more in, in deeper pain, the people who profit from that then set up a system that only looks at the sources of pain that are biological. And when I spoke, that the, there was no discussion of the wider social causes at all. And when I spoke at the end, I was trying to think, well, what can I say to these people? And I, I just said to them, you know, you could describe the plot of Romeo and Juliet using Newtonian physics, and it would all be true, and it would all be good science, and it would be valuable, and I would be in favour of it. You wouldn't understand a damn thing why Romeo and Juliet do anything, right? And in a similar way, I don't, wouldn't take that analogy too far, because there are real changes in the brain that make it harder to get out of depression, anxiety, and addiction once that process begins. But, you know, we were very close to the Tenderloin, which is the part of San Francisco with a huge amount of concentration of homeless people with addiction problems. And I said to them, let's all just go out to the Tenderloin, speak to the first person with addiction problems we meet, listen to their life story, then come back and tell me the primary thing that's going on here is that their amygdala is oversensitive. It's, it's an absurd way of coding our distress. The science they were doing was really important and real, and we should understand these mechanisms. But what you've ended up with is a society that's driven exclusively by the profit motive will only look at the ways of responding to depression that can be monetized. So we talked before, there's incredible evidence, exposure to the natural world significantly reduces depression. For the same reason psychedelics do, it reduces your sense of ego, gives you a sense of awe, gives you a sense the world is big and you are small, frees you from your ego. It's an amazing piece of research. The, the state uh, prison in Michigan happened to have uh, one part that looked out over lush greenery and one part that looked out over concrete, and it was random where, the, where, you, went, where you ended up in the prison, um, people who looked out of a lush greenery were 23% less likely to become depressed, right? There's all this evidence that exposure to the natural world reduces depression. Now, there is $10 billion to be made out of telling people that it's just a brain, brain chemical imbalance and just drugging them, which I stress again I'm not against. And there's $0 or pretty close to it to be made out of exposure to the natural world. There's a little bit of money in taking them out to the natural world, but not very much. And so we end up with a society where we only tell that story that sliver of the story that could be monetized, and we don't tell the other aspects of the story. Now, if we were only telling those other aspects of the story and not the element that's about biology, I would be in favor of also talking about that. But we've ended up with this hugely distorted story as a culture about why we're in such pain. And if you don't understand why you're in pain, the first step to dealing with this pain is for us to honestly understand why we feel these ways. And I don't think we're at that level yet. Do you see what I mean? I do. And I think that's a good good place to end. So let me ask you then the question we used to, to end the podcast, which is, what are three books that you read as part of this project, not as part of this project, that you would recommend to the audience? Hmm. I would say a few. I would say A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit, which is an extraordinary book. So Rebecca Solnit, by coincidence, was in, and have you read this book? No. You would really like this. So Rebecca Solnit happened to be in an earthquake in the late 80s. I think it was in San Francisco, but I could be wrong. And she noticed that in this earthquake, everyone reacted solidaristically, right? People drop what they're doing and they try to help the people around them. This is an absolute, turns out, complete cross-cultural human universal. In natural disasters, people help each other. I mean, I think about that amazing scene in Houston of the people forming a human chain to get to the people who needed to be rescued. And to me, that's such a beautiful metaphor about what human life can be. So Rebecca Solnit noticed that after this earthquake in the months that followed, of course, people were sad. People had died in the earthquake. It was People weren't celebrating it. But they were also incredibly proud of this moment when they had come together and actually felt a tremendous amount of relief. And so the book is in part about how do we hold on to those moments beyond the crisis zone? So she tells the story of Dorothy Day, the great Catholic social justice um, activist who 
actually began her activism because she was in the San Francisco earthquake in 1906 and was like, why can't we be like this all the time? So that to me, again, we tell these stories, which are, of course true about very dark things that are deep in human nature. And we should tell those stories. They're real. But we much more rarely tell the stories about the amazing things that are just below the surface, right? It's amazing to me to think, if I look around your office, if there was an earthquake now, we would all instinctively help each other immediately. That tells you something really deep and profound about, about human beings. So that's a wonderful book. Also her book, Hope in the Dark, which is particularly necessary at the moment for reasons I don't need to summarise. I would recommend Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything which is really a, an absolutely astonishing kind of tour de force of the social crisis that we're facing. We've not talked here, and I don't write that much in the book about the ecological aspect of this, but, you know, a, society, a, a culture, a species engaged in destroying their own habitat should feel anxious and depressed, right? That's a really foolish thing to be doing, and it's right that we would have warning signals. And, and I thought when I was reading Naomi's book, and I've read it a few times, it's really remarkable... Up to now, these feelings of distress that we have, we've basically treated them as pathologies, right? You know, I'm British, as you can obviously tell from my accent. Um, one of the things that completely baffles British people when we come to the United States is the existence of indigestion pills, right? Because I remember the first time I was offered one when I was 20 or whatever. I was like, but wait, indigestion is like a signal from your body that you're eating too fast, right? That's not a malfunction, that's a function. You don't want to get rid of that. You want to listen to it, right? And, and I think a lot of these problems that we're facing... They're in fact signals that instead of being pathologized should be honored, listened to, and we should change our societies in line with them. And I think Naomi's uh, This Changes Everything is really a remarkable kind of guide to that. And I think the third book I would recommend that really speaks to the conversation we've been having about, well, why don't these things change if the answers are so clear I would recommend Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman, uh, partly because I'm writing this biography of Chomsky, so I've been immersed in Chomskyana for a long time now. But I think that's a really great book for helping us to understand the ways in which our consciousness gets constructed in ways that are not immediately clear to us, that divert us from genuinely understanding what's going on. Now, Chomsky doesn't write about mental health clearly in, in this direct way, although actually, you know, the work of his linguistics has massive implications for human creativity and human thought, which I actually think do bear on mental health in all sorts of really interesting ways. I actually think you could do a... Uh, Josh, who runs the bike store in Baltimore, one of the reasons he had all these insights is because he read so much Chomsky. Um, but I do think that would help us to understand why at the moment we're blocked, we've internalised so much propaganda, and I had internalised so much. Think about Tim Kasser, who we were talking about, who learned all this stuff about junk values... You know, I had studied social sciences at Cambridge University. I was pretty well informed about all sorts of things. The entire time I was depressed, it never even occurred to me there were social causes of my depression and anxiety. When I was a kid, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, only individuals and their families. I always thought I was anti-Thatcherite. I realized how much I had internalized that belief, right? I was a Thatcherite to my own pain. And I think a kind of Chomskyan analysis of why that I lived in this propaganda system that made me, that diverted me from understanding my own distress and is diverting many of us from understanding our own distress. I think manufacturing consent would help people to think about that. Johan Hari, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Can I just say, can my publishers tell me off if I don't, that anyone who wants any more information about the book can go to www.thelostconnections.com. There you go. All right. Thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed that. That was great. Thank you so much. Oh, that was so meditative. I feel I feel like we... Meditative? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was That's great. That's good. 
Thank you to Johan for being here. That, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, thank you to all of you for listening. As always, I'm appreciative that you tuned in for this. Thank you to my producer, Bert Pinkerton. This Pancho is a Box Media Podcast Network production. And we'll be back with someone else who is interesting next week. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.